Well, good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here. And I invite you to turn to page 11 as we get ready to go to God's Word this morning. I hope you have enjoyed uh, 2022, the year of preaching the gospel from the Old Testament here at Sycamore. We worked our way through Ecclesiastes most of the year, and then we're starting a new series between now and Advent on the book of Malachi, another Old Testament uh, prophet. Uh, You can find today's passage on your own uh, smartphone or your own Bibles, or if you'd like to use the uh, chair Bible there in front of you, today's passage is found on page 753. And if you don't have a Bible at home, would you please take that one home with you as our gift? We'd be glad for you to have that. So as you're turning there, I want to get you kind of to the spirit here. So there's a well-known TV show. It was popular most of the 90s, about a group of friends. And two of them all of a sudden started dating, getting getting into a relationship. And the guy had been in and out of several short-term relationships, could never sustain a long relationship. The lady, on the other hand, she had been in several, like, long, actual, real deep relationships. And so they start dating, and they have their first big fight. And after their first big fight, he starts acting like the relationship is over, starts saying some weird things, like, well, this was fun, I'm glad we got to do this. She's like, hold up, time out. We're, We're not over, we just had a fight. And that exasperation, she was, if, if you broke up with someone after the first fight, you, you'd never be in a relationship longer than a couple of, oh, that's your problem. You've never been in a real relationship before. In real relationships, you fight. You go back and forth. And I tell you that because that's very much like the minor prophets in the Old Testament, especially what we're gonna see in Malachi over the next month or so. The prophets come to God's people with problems that God has with his people. And we get to see what it's like to be in a real relationship with a real person because they have real issues that get brought up. You see, God's grace is free, but it's never naked. It makes demands. It brings change when it's real. And God's grace comes and it speaks correction to God's people when there is no change from his grace. We ended Ecclesiastes, if you remember, with the summary statement from the book of Ecclesiastes, fear God and keep his commandments. This is what all life is about, it tells us. And here in Malachi, we're going to see someone preaching to those who don't have much fear of God. And where there's no fear of God, grace is taken advantage of. What makes Malachi so refreshing so real is that it's a dialogue. It's a back and forth dialogue between God and his people. It's almost an argument, if you'll allow me to stretch the metaphor, between God and his people. And the argument, the dialogue, the disagreement perhaps, centers on God bringing up six different times something pretty specific. And six different times we're going to see, not all today, but six different times God's people respond with basically a what? Whatever. We're not like that. We're going to see the first one today of this interesting response to God's words. I invite you to turn with me to page 11 or in your own Bibles there, Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. This is the word of the Lord. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and led his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, 
but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Now this is God's word. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and heavenly fathers, we come before your word this morning. We ask, Lord, that you would once again open your word up to us. May we see you as you are, as you've revealed yourself, not as we want you to be or make you out to be. May we cast off our idolatrous picture of you and bask in the greatness of who you are. We pray, Lord, that you would show us yourself yet again clearly and change us. We pray this, Lord, by your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So Malachi, it's not Malachi, the Italian prophet, it's Malachi. It's the last book in our Old Testament. His name literally means my messenger, so we don't know if this is an actual person saying his name or if this person is choosing to remain anonymous. It doesn't really matter, but we, just, but we don't know. It's a very late book. It's written after the exile. Okay, now what's the exile? All right, so God's people, they're rescued from Egypt. Some of you remember Charlton Heston splitting the Red Sea. Others of you remember, you know, the animated movie Prince of Egypt. Either way, all that stuff happened. He gets them out of Egypt. He gets them to their own land. They birth a nation. They birth a monarchy out of that nation. They have a civil war. They split in two. An ancient superpower comes in and wipes out the northern part of the country. They're gone, cease to exist, lost to history. A little under a generation later, another superpower comes in and grabs the remaining southern uh, tribes and takes them off to exile. The country of Babylon does this. About a generation later, another superpower comes in named Persia. They conquer Babylon, and they tell all these captive nations, hey, we don't want to sit here and pay to feed y'all in the capital city, so if you will not rebel, we'll help you rebuild. Go home, pay taxes, don't rebel, and we're all good. Very enlightened for the time, so God's people get to go back to their land. The Persian government actually pays to have them help rebuild things. If you were here a couple years ago when we went through the book of Esther, we covered that time period. So this is right after that time period. They've kind of rebuilt some some things, and now Malachi comes at that time period to speak a word to them of God's corrective love. That gets us to our theme for today, which is this. Real love is a verb, and God shows what it does. So it starts off very, in a very interesting way with the burden of love. Notice it doesn't say the word of the Lord. It says the oracle of the word. Kind of weird a little bit there. The word oracle there is an interesting word. It means something heavy, carried. It means a load. It means a burden, See, these Old Testament prophets were not just cantankerous old guys coming and calling people back to the good old days. A lot of times you think it's what they were. It's not what it is. Instead, the Lord came to them and he put this burden on them, this burden of his word that they then had to proclaim. See, we, we see here just in the very first verse that giving a do better talk to someone is supposed to be painful for both parties. Calling out sin on behalf of God is a burden. It's hard. And those who are actually called of God to do it, do it with tears because it's a heavy load. It's burdensome. Those who call out sin and others with gloating and with joy, they're not doing it on behalf of the Lord because those who do it on behalf of the Lord do it with tears. 
So with that burdensome task in mind, Malachi starts his do-better talk with the good news before he gets to the bad. He declares, how do I love thee? The very first two words in Hebrew, after the title of this, the very first two words, God comes and he says, I have loved y'all. It's his very first words. I've loved you. You know, I grew up in church world. I've confessed that to many of you. And oftentimes I like to say this like little catch, this kind of throwaway phrase, the mean Old Testament, because I was raised in a church tradition that said the Old, the Old Testament doesn't have a lot of devotional value. It's just a history of Israel. It's all law. There was no grace until Jesus came. Just, just be careful about that Old Testament stuff. Spend most of your time in the New Testament. And that's just not an accurate picture of the Old Testament at all. And here's one of the examples we see. Malachi is all about calling God's people back to grace, empowered by love. That's why I put that famous poem by Elizabeth Barrett Browning in the front cover as one of your meditative pre-worship quotes to kind of capture that. That's why I use lines from that poem as part of the title to the sermon points here because God declares his love for his people in the book of Malachi. He says, I have loved you, past action." with present consequences bleeding into the future. I have loved you. You believe that? You actually believe that God loves you like that? God's people back then didn't. Here's how I put it for the boys and girls. Boys and girls, let's look at your page 11 there. Verse two says this, says, I've loved y'all, says God, but you answer back, whatever, how? See, they scoff. They don't like it. They, di they disagree. They disbelieve. And we're going to see them do this multiple times in the book of, of Malachi. And they do it here. Whatever. How? But before you judge them, you need to recognize that life has not worked out the way they expected. Their nation was destroyed. And even though it had been rebuilt, the parts that had been rebuilt were, were nothing like the glory that used to be there. There are obstacles there are difficulties. There's bullies all around them. They did their worship stuff. They did all the, all the ceremonies. They were God's chosen people, but it had not paid off. And since life had not met their expectations, they answer sarcastically, how have you loved us? You ever been there? Now, of course, there's good church people. We don't say that out loud. Right, I know. But when things don't go our way, we can think it, can't we? When God doesn't come through for us, when that loved one still doesn't believe, when that problem won't go away, when that trial just won't end, our heart cries out, where is your love, Lord? Let Malachi be balm for your heart as God gently answers that scoffing question. We ask, how do you love me? And the next few verses, he says, let me count the ways. And our compassionate God, he stoops down to our level in order to outline exactly what he's done to love us. I mean, it really is amazing. When you and I are challenged like this, we get defensive, we get angry, we get a little put out, but God does not do that. He takes his complaining children by the hand and he reminds them of his love. 
Look with me at the rest of verse 2 in the first part of verse 3. It says this, says, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And here's where we cringe, right? God says, I have hated. Well, Pastor Sean, make it go away. Tell us how, well, actually this Hebrew word means, no, it means exactly what you think it does. Sorry. Apparently God hasn't seen the yard signs, right? Hate has no home here. The bumper sticker he completely missed, hate is not a family value. What are we supposed to do with this? How do we fix this? Well, pop quiz time, you can answer back. What is the best interpreter of the Bible? The Bible itself, very good. 500 sycamore points to all of you, excellent. All right, so let's, let's look at a couple places, all right? Genesis chapter 29, verses 30 and 31, the story of Jacob and Leah says this. So Jacob went in to Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Notice verse 31, Leah is hated. It's a synonym for what's happening to her in verse 30. What's happening to her in verse 30? She is loved less than Rachel. So right here we got two verses where to hate means to love less. Okay, there's some wisdom there. Maybe Jesus himself can help us out. Luke chapter 14, verse 26. He defines discipleship this way. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, and mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I bet many of us in the room who take discipleship very seriously, it's been a while since we've thought about how important hatred is to be a disciple, haven't we? It's just not part of how we use the word. So hate in Scripture has this broad, robust usage. It means loved less. It means given less attention. It means all of those things. But even more, the more important question is, what is hate as used in Malachi 1.3? It's a covenantal choice of one over the other. You see, the Bible presents itself as one story of God fixing the fall. So at the very beginning, right after humans' rebellion and destruction brought in sin, God comes and God sets up two lines of people, two families of people. One group, he promises, will bring about the rescuer. The other group of people, the other line, they're going to do everything they can to stop that line. And God himself says, I'm going to put hatred between these two groups. We see this specifically in Genesis 3.15 where God is pronouncing the curse on the serpent. Satan, through the serpent, he says this, I will put enmity, intense hatred, between you and the woman. So that's the serpent and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. So these lines of people coming from them. Then he switches and said, he shall bruise your head. So talking to the serpent, he says, one person will come from Eve who's going to crush or bruise your head. You, in turn, are going to bruise his heel. In the very beginning, there is this promise that God will fix. He will undo the fall through a singular person coming from Eve. And this singular person will crush the serpent. Until then, God establishes two lines, two families, two offsprings. The word is seed in Hebrew, so it's often called seed theology, if you've ever seen that in your reading. It says they will hate each other, enmity. And the line of the serpent will try to destroy the line of Eve. 
the Jacob-Esau hatred and story from Genesis is right there in that story. And then their descendants in the form of the nations of Israel and Edom, which he's referring to here, is all about this conflict between these two family lines who hate each other. So when God proclaims his hatred of Esau, it refers to his covenantal choice rooted in that seed theology expressed in the hostility of these two lines of people. God sovereignly chooses one over the other. He determines that Jacob, rather than Esau, will be the one to carry on the line of this coming Redeemer. And that reality of God's choice is right here in Malachi. I want to give you a warning, if I, if I may, as, as your pastor. We are dealing with holy things here. When we speak of God's sovereign election, we need to tremble as we question, remembering what we actually deserve versus what we actually receive. Bring your questions. God's okay with that. But you tremble as you question. And as you question, you notice, like here in verse 2, notice the yet of grace. That that word yet is huge in verse 2. God showed favor to the wrong one. And then he repeats his love for Jacob twice. It's not redundancy. He's reminding God's people, I purposely loved the wrong brother. In the ancient Near East, you were supposed to favor the older brother. If you remember about a decade ago when Downton Abbey came and broke the internet, the whole first season was about what? There's no heir left. There's no older brother. What do we do? That was the ancient Near Eastern way as well. And God comes and says, I am not bound by that. I choose Jacob, and by choosing Jacob, my actions will be defined as me hating the other one. If you're really, really bothered by the whole love-hate thing, could it be that somewhere deep in the recesses of your heart, you assume that you're the right brother, and it kind of bothers you that God doesn't serve the right one? See, what God does here is he comes and he gives us a promise of real love. See, real love is based on the promise of the lover. It's not based on the characteristics of the beloved. I'm in the process of doing uh, premarital counseling for two different couples who are getting married in the next month. And so I've been thinking about vows a lot lately. And this, wedding vows are a perfect example of this. We don't get up in wedding vows and say, I promise to love you as long as your belly doesn't pooch out over that stomach. <laughs> right? I promise to love you as long as your face doesn't get any wrinkles. Promise to love you as long as your hair doesn't go gray. Some of us would prefer gray to gone, but whatever. That's stupid, right? You don't vow those things. You vow, I will love you for better or for worse. Because when worse comes, it's based upon the promise, not the characteristics. That's real love, and that's what God is saying here. God's people will probably never be faithful and grateful, but God loves them anyway. His sovereign choice is not as long as you're cute little puppies, you're mine. But as soon as you start to vomit on the floor, you're out of here. Right? No, he doesn't treat us like we treat our pets. He's like, no, you are my beloved because I say you are. Even when you're not very lovely. That is real love. Even here in Malachi, where God has not met his people's expectations, and so they answer back sharply, sarcastically, how have you loved us? It's evidence of a deep disbelief, isn't it? 
It's evidence of deep disappointment. And so God's response is, look at my sovereign electing love. The Lord deals gently with them. He proclaims love, they scoff. He reminds them of his covenant love. He reminds them of his promise to be their God and they his people. He prods them towards seeing their peril, reminding them of grace before he reminds them of law. Some of you are still struggling with this. You're not satisfied. I get it. I get it. A couple things to help us out here. One, we need to remember that there is a God and we are not him. Two, if God is pure and holy as the scriptures reveal him, then he gets to hate. You realize love and hate aren't third-party concepts that God must conform to. No, love is something God expresses and we define. Love doesn't exist outside of God and he either conforms to it. That would make love God. No, God defines love and God gets to define hate. And unlike our hatred, his hatred is never based in sin. It's never based in pride. It's never based in pain and disappointment. It's based in holiness, purity. And third, hatred here in this context is God looking at the scoreboard, not examining his own heart. And what I mean by that is he's looking at what he's actually tangibly done in history for Israel versus what he's tangibly done to Edom and promises to do to them in the future. He's looking at the scoreboard of his actual actions. Now, I know hate closes the ears of our modern sensibilities. I mean, our culture is riddled with hate. We just don't name it. I know, I know. But here, he's actually using the way we use hate today. If you've ever heard the term, don't be a hater, they're often referring to something you've said, right, or something you've done. They're not really thinking about the feelings of your heart. And so, too, that's what's happening here. God is not talking about the feelings of his heart. He's looking at his actions and saying, by any objective standard, I've loved y'all and I've hated this other nation. Boys and girls, I know we've uh, done some big stuff here. I want to make sure you're still tracking with me. This is, this is hard stuff. Let's look at on your page 11, okay? Let's look at your verse 2 and your verse 3 all together. Here's how we put it for you. I have loved y'all, God says. But you answer back, whatever, how? God says, well, I picked you to be my special people a long time ago. You weren't the best or the strongest, but I loved y'all. Your enemy, Edom, I did not love. In fact, I made their lives hard and punished them. Boys and girls, you ever been there at recess? All of a sudden, you're playing or having fun, then all of a sudden, someone comes up with the ball. And all of a sudden, the lines are formed. And the person with the ball and some other person, I've never understood how they get to be the other person. They stand there, and what are they about to do? They're about to pick teams, right, boys and girls? I don't know how y'all feel about picking teams. It's the worst part of the day for me every time. The whole organized sports thing is a great mystery to me. So anyway, so they would go, and they would get the best, the strongest, the fastest, and get this guy. I want this one. I want this girl, this girl. And they finally get down to, you take Sean. No, I ain't taking it. I had him last time, right? And God is looking at his people and saying, guess what? That was y'all. You should have been picked last 
when it comes to nations, you weren't the big, huge, strong warriors that everybody's like, oh yeah, they're going to win. God says this. I'm, I'm giving you the gist of what he says in Deuteronomy. You can look this up. He goes, you weren't the smartest. You weren't the brightest. You weren't the wisest. You weren't the prettiest. You weren't the best. But for my glory and to show my power and because I loved you, I picked you. That's love. And Edom, I didn't pick. And I opted to protect you from them. That's what he's saying, boys and girls. In the cosmic kickball game, God picks us because he loves us, not because we're good at it. And he goes on for all of us and says, just like Israel and Judah were destroyed and then rebuilt, Edom too was destroyed by bigger nations and they want to rebuild. And God says, I won't let them. I will thwart them. I will stop them. He points to his anti-Edom actions in the past and says, you'll see those same things in the present. He maintains his covenant commitments. And to prove it, he refers to himself as the Lord of hosts. If you have an older translation, it might say the Lord Almighty. It's a great title, but we miss it. You know, the president of the United States has many titles. One you'll hear in the media a lot is leader of the free world. But the title for the president that displays and conveys the absolute power of that office is the title Commander-in-Chief. What does it mean? It means that the 2.2 million current active and reserve duty people in the military take their ultimate orders from that office. He or she can take them and deploy them wherever they want to kill people and break things, and they're really good at it. He can bring in destruction. And when God says he's the Lord of hosts, it's the ancient Near East equivalent of commander-in-chief. Hosts is armies. So God is saying, I am the commander-in-chief of the armies of heaven, and I will unleash that destructive power on your nemesis nation because I love you and I favor you. That's a pretty big deal. And then even more worse to our modern sensibilities he declares that he's angry with a whole swath of humanity, an entire nation. In fact, he even says he's indignant at them. And if we're candid, part of our hearts is indignant at him. How dare you? You don't get to be mad at us. We worship you. We do the stuff for you. You owe us. You don't get to be mad at us. I pray that these few little verses have expanded your view of God. The Old Testament absolutely says God is love, but he is not the big marshmallow in the sky who grades on a curve. He is not the man upstairs. He's not the giant sky grandpa who always overindulges and never disciplines. He is the three times holy Lord God Almighty who is passionately committed to his holiness and passionately committed to his people. He will thwart, even destroy those who set themselves up against his beloved. And we kind of see how the rest of the book is going to play out. God turns to his own people in verse 5 and he says, you too will see that I'm not some provincial little old God of Israel. No, verse 5 shows this worshipful response. We say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. They're going to be blown away by his sovereignty and power. 
You ever been blown away by God's sovereignty and power? You ever been struck by the realization that he's not a small thing? That he's active? That he's powerful? That he's real? You know, I keep this prayer journal, this little prayer journal, not because I'm like showing off, I'm a professional Christian, gotta have a prayer journal, but I keep it because, you know, a short pencil is better than a long memory. So I write these things down so I can pray for them, right? And then as, I, as God answers them, sort of, I put a check mark next to them, or as they're answered completely, I cross it out. Or if I, like the Garth Brooks song, I'm like, oh, thank God he did not answer that prayer, right? That's a stupid prayer, get rid of that one. I go through these things. And so I'm constantly going to the right, filling up my prayers. And every once in a while, I'll stop and I'll go left and I'll see all the answered prayers. And when I do that, I'm like, I forgot, I prayed for that, I forgot. And I'm just struck, dumbfounded by the active, powerful sovereignty of God, how much he has answered. And I'm just like, you're so great. And just as an aside, as your pastor, let me tell you right now, okay, it's not gonna last forever, so you might well, take advantage of this. I am on a hot streak right now. So if you have some prayer requests, y'all need to come on. Okay? I, don't know who's, I don't know who gets it next, but I'm on a hot streak. You're going to want to come and pray for you. Because our great God answers prayer like that. All right, so to sum up, the three times holy God declares his love. He promises that they will come to worship him. They will see his greatness. We need to hold on to that triple promise of God's love because the rest of this book is a do-better talk for God's people. It's aimed at us. It's going to be rough. It's going to be convicting. You're probably going to want to throw things at me more than normal. And so we need to remember that God's very first words, I love y'all, because it's going to get ugly. And before we get there, let's wrap up for today. If you've been around church world for a little while, you kind of know this passage. Paul famously refers to this in Romans chapter 9 to explain how Gentiles, people like us, non-Jewish people, how come we're suddenly the recipients of God's grace, whereas the Jewish people seem in large part to be rejecting it. And his conclusion, based on this passage of Malachi that Paul comes to, is that God's sovereign electing love is personified in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then that love is further empowered by the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And so for those who refuse to see Jesus as their rescuer, all that's left for them is the hatred of God. So when the Bible says, God so loved the world, our scoffing hearts, worn out by the difficulties of life, exhausted by the trials, so often we hear that and our hearts cry out, whatever, how have you loved us? And to all who ask that question here, the answer is that God loved the world by giving his unique son. You look to Jesus and you see God's love. See him living the life that we should have lived before a sovereign, powerful God of holiness. See Jesus dying the death that we should have died before the almighty God of justice. And see Jesus conquering the grave in his resurrection and know that the love of God is in Jesus. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus as Lord, you can receive and then actually rest in the love of God. But if you stubbornly refuse to believe, if you continue to look to your own works to save you, or if you refuse to even acknowledge that you need to be saved, 
the only thing left for you to experience is the hatred of God. Of a three times holy God who is absolutely uncompromising when it comes to sin. Oh, even now I beg you, don't claim your place among those who refuse to believe. The love of God is available to you right now. Repent and believe the gospel. Place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the resurrected Lord and swim in the love of God. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for difficult passages like this. We thank you, Lord, for times when you break through and reveal more of who you really are to break up the idol in our hearts we call God so that we can worship you as we ought, that we can see your love, your hatred, your sovereignty, your almighty power, your holiness, and that in awe and fear we can proclaim great is the Lord. We pray, Lord, even now that you would overwhelm us with your greatness and that in the presence of that greatness we would feel the burden of our own sin and that would flee to your love in Jesus Christ. Even now, Lord, would you cause many to repent and believe. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.